the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 49, The Trial of the King, part 4. In the last episode, we examined the conviction and sentencing of King Louis XVI. Found guilty of crimes against the nation, the king was sentenced to death by a narrow but firm majority. The convention rejected decisively the proposed appeal to the people and also rebuffed any proposal to delay or mitigate the king's sentence. Louis XVI had been sentenced to death and he would die within days. This episode unpacks the final 24 hours of Louis's life. We'll examine his time in prison, his execution, and the significant effort undertaken by authorities to ensure that no escape, riot, coup, or plot could interfere with the king's death. We'll also explore the considerable implications of the king's demise, not only on revolutionary politics, but also its impact on the war and kingship in France. This will be the final episode on the King's trial. It will be the final episode featuring Louis XVI. And I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into one of the most pivotal and memorable events of the French Revolution. Before we get into it, a reminder to send in any questions you may have for episode 50, which will be a Q&A episode on everything up until and including the death of the King. You can send your questions in by social media, email, Patreon, or the Contact Us form on the website. Furthermore, if you want to feature in the show, you can also send in a voice recording of your question. It's really easy to do, and instructions are on the website and on Patreon. Please have your questions sent in by Sunday the 5th of February. Finally, I have uploaded and will continue to upload a range of behind-the-scenes videos covering the podcast's plans for the next few months including upcoming collaborations with other shows. So do keep an eye on Patreon for those videos. I'll also be releasing the next bonus episode, The Corsican Revolution Part 2, shortly. That episode will include a series of events which are so chaotic that you wouldn't believe they happened if it wasn't for the fact that they did indeed happen. If you've ever wanted to become the ruler of a Mediterranean island that otherwise you have absolutely no connection to, that episode will contain some very important lessons. Of course, if you're enjoying Grey History, the best way to help ensure that there is more Grey History for you to keep enjoying in the future is by supporting the show on Patreon. Grey History is only possible thanks to the support of the community, and as a thank you for joining the community, you'll receive an ad-free feed, access to hours worth of exclusive content, and of course, the warm fuzzy feelings of helping to keep one of your favourite independent podcasts on the air. Certain tiers also get early access to new episodes, amongst other cool perks. So, if you want to binge listen to five full-length bonus episodes right now, not to mention dozens of mini-episode extras, support the show on Patreon for as little as $2 when new main episodes are released. For the price of just half a cup of coffee, 
you can help keep grey history on the air and enjoy tons of exclusive grey history while doing so. A warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show, including the new Virtuous Citizens, Madeline, Chris and Robert. Also, another warm welcome to the newest True Revolutionaries, Kaham and Michael, both of whom got access to this episode a couple of weeks early, thanks to being on the True Revolutionary tier. A huge thank you to the champions of the people, Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica and Joel, and thank you to Mark for increasing his pledge. Finally, a special thank you to the amazingly generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Christy and Charles. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 49, The Trial of the King. Part 4. I wonder what it's like to be told that you're going to die. I mean, We're all going to die, sure. Death and taxes are famously the only two certainties in life. But what I mean to say is I wonder what it would be like to be told precisely when, where and how you're going to die. To be told the exact manner in which you will meet your end. For a surprising number of people, this is far from a far-fetched hypothetical. It is actually what happened. And indeed, This is precisely what happened to the former King of France, Louis XVI. On the 20th of January, 1793, the French Revolutionary government informed Louis of his fate. He had been found guilty of crimes against the nation, and he had been sentenced to die a traitor's death. Critically, there would be no reprieve, as the convention had categorically rejected the idea of clemency or delay just days before. This would be his end, and he would be publicly executed the very next day. It is clear from his reaction that Louis had anticipated this outcome. While locked away in prison, the former king had thrown himself into reading. In fact, he had read so much that his requests for more and more books had rather infuriated some commune officials. One remarked that the king had asked for a library sufficient for a very long time, and was clearly frustrated by the fact that the king didn't seem to have gotten the memo that he wouldn't be around to read for that much longer. But Louis had got the memo. Amongst his various books were works on the English Revolution. Louis knew full well how this was going to end. With the execution of King Charles I of England in 1649, the precedent was there, and it did not bode well for the former monarch. Thus, when the delegation arrived to inform the king of his fate, Louis was prepared for this eventuality. Louis immediately produced pre-written letters to both the National Convention and the Paris Commune. In his letter to the convention, he made a series of requests. Firstly, 
that his execution be delayed for three days, in order to allow him to better prepare for the end. Secondly, that he be allowed to nominate a confessor of his own choosing. Finally, that he be allowed to see his family. Interestingly, in the letter to the convention, Louis refused to address the body as the National Convention. In the original manuscript, he had specifically crossed the word national out. The king may have been asking the deputies for favours, but he had no intention of conferring any form of legitimacy onto the body which had sentenced him to death. His first request, that his execution be delayed, was rejected. He would die the next day, and that would be the end of it. But the convention granted the other two requests, allowing the king to name an Irish priest as his confessor and to be reunited with his family on the evening of the 20th. Unfortunately for Marie Antoinette and the couple's children, no one had informed them of the grim news, and so that responsibility fell to the king. These tears would be the last they shared together. Although Marie Antoinette made her husband promise that the family could see him in the morning, upon their departure that evening, Louis provided clear instructions that his family were not to be allowed to return. The pain of their pain was simply too great, and he wished to spare both them and himself. Louis awoke before dawn on the morning of the 21st of January. He received communion from the Irish priest Edgeworth and remained in Edgeworth's company while waiting for commune officials. Just why this responsibility fell to an Irishman will be the topic of the first episode extra for this episode, along with the rather unusual career path Edgeworth had after the king's death. The second episode extra will actually be Edgeworth's account of the execution, something that offers a fascinating perspective into the affair from not only an eyewitness but a participant as well. Before receiving communion, the king prepared a series of items for his family. A royal seal was given to his son, a sign of the royal succession, while his wedding ring was passed on to his wife. Considering the marriage of the two monarchs, was once national discussion, considering talk of infidelity and affairs dominated the underground press, it is perhaps ironic that this is what Louis passed to his partner. Yet this is also no fairy tale, and so the guards confiscated these keepsakes before they reached their intended destination. Do try to keep in mind that we have officially reached 1793, and thus Until further notice, there is no such thing as a happy ending. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues 
for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. And join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. By the time the Commune officials arrived at 8am, the king still had a couple humorous interactions up his sleeve. The commander of the Paris National Guard, Santerre, who we met briefly during episode 36 on the fall of the monarchy, informed the king that it was his time to go. Louis promptly told Santerre that he was busy and that he would have to wait a few minutes. The prisoner then proceeded to casually close the door on the man who was tasked with leading him to his execution, as if closing it on an unwanted door-to-door salesman. With his time up, Louis asked the priest Edgeworth to give his final benediction, and then the king proceeded to just get on with it. On his way out of his quarters, Louis grabbed a hat, ironically sporting a tricolour badge, as well as a series of manuscripts. He went to give these documents to one member of the commune's delegation, a gentleman by the name of Jacques Roux. Now, we will be meeting Roux very shortly, so remember this name, because he's going to become a prominent leader of the Enraged, a group of far-left revolutionaries which were considerably more radical than the mountain. But for our purposes here, what's interesting is the short comical episode which proceeded to play out between the king and a Parisian revolutionary who had spent the last few months rallying the people to demand the execution of the man now standing opposite him. The king, having politely asked Roux to take the documents, could hardly have expected the reply. Roux refused and snapped back that he was charged only with conducting him to the scaffold. Simply put, Louis could take his papers and shove it. The king was rather taken aback, but managed to pass the documents to another member of the commune's delegation. They turned out to be the king's last will and testament, so it's probably a pretty good thing that someone did take them. Joining the king in his journey to the scaffold was the Irish priest Edgeworth. The two sat side by side as they travelled in a large green carriage. It was a cold morning, and a thick fog blanketed Paris as the condemned and his confessor slowly rolled through the streets. The two recited psalms as they went, interrupted by the consistent sound of the drummers 
which headed the procession. And the sound of the drums was indeed all that echoed in the king's ears as he prepared to meet his maker. The streets were otherwise quiet. While on other occasions the king had been met by cries of support or opposition, this time no such calls could be heard. But just because they were quiet does not mean that the streets were empty. Quite the opposite, in fact. Crowds of onlookers watched the carriage as it weaved through the streets of Paris. Royal sympathisers later argued that intimidation prevented shouts of support for the king, but even if this was the case, it doesn't explain the lack of boos and jeers. Perhaps the crowd was taken by a semi-paralysis, watching in disbelief an occasion which was once unthinkable. Whatever the case may be, the journey to the scaffold was quiet. It was also uneventful. And indeed, the commune had gone to great lengths to ensure as such. Naturally, the transfer of the king from his prison to the scaffold was a task fraught with danger. Rumours swirled of all sorts of plots to free the trapped monarch, and the distinction between fact and fiction was impossible to distinguish. Reports filtered in of posters and pamphlets rallying support for a jailbreak. Whispers contained warnings of secret plans and weapon caches, of armed royalists and treasonous revolutionaries. But amongst all the possible crimes was one very real one. Highlighting the dangers the revolution faced, a deputy of the convention, a gentleman named Le Pellier, had been sensationally assassinated on the 20th of January. That's right, a member of the National Convention had been assassinated by a former soldier the day before the king's execution. Famously, the 21st of January gave the royalists a martyr in King Louis XVI, but the 20th gave one to the regicides as well. With the murdered corpse of Le Pellier not yet cold, the rumour mill was claiming that the counter-revolution was preparing a much larger strike. As the hour of the king's execution drew near, the authorities grew increasingly concerned. And to be frank, who can blame them? As a result, the municipal government of the capital, the Paris Commune, had gone to great lengths to ensure no royalist plot could succeed. The city's gates were closed, and troops were stationed at the entrances to ensure that any crowd was prevented from both entering and leaving the city. All of the city's sectional committees were to sit in permanent session, allowing them to respond immediately to a jailbreak, coup, riot, rebellion, or any other counter-revolutionary plot. Each section was ordered to furnish dozens of politically reliable men to guard key points of the city, along with transporting the king to the scaffold. Credentials were issued to help expose impostors, reserves were drawn up to ensure adequate manpower, and cavalry was stationed throughout the city. In short, the commune's preparations for the king's execution were elaborate, detailed, and all-encompassing. No stone was left unturned in defence of the big day. In fact, it is estimated that perhaps 80,000 men, that's right, 80,000, 
were armed and on duty during the execution of Louis XVI. As an interesting comparison, the Duke of Brunswick invaded France with about 42,000 Prussian soldiers. The Austrians had supplied 29,000 men for the invasion, with smaller states contributing another 10,000 or so. In total, Brunswick's army made up little more than 80,000 soldiers, and their mission was to invade one of the largest and most populous countries in Europe. The French reserved that number for a single execution. With the king having departed prison, you may be asking yourself, where exactly was Louis going? In attempting to further secure the foundations of their fledgling republic, the revolutionary authorities were keen for a public execution. During the trial, many deputies had talked of the need to destroy royal superstitions, of the necessity to strike an irrecoverable blow against monarchy, and it was believed that a public execution would do just that. And let's be clear, there were still royal superstitions, right up until the end. When Louis's carriage departed prison, when he was literally just hours away from death, crowds had gathered outside the gates, seeking the king's blessing. Even now, months after the fall of the monarchy, and in the heart of the revolution's epicentre, royal superstition was still alive and well. As a result, Louis's execution would take place in the Place de la Revolution. The site, one of the major public squares in Paris, was chosen for a variety of reasons. Firstly, other squares were deemed by the Commune as too risky from a security perspective. But perhaps more importantly, the Place de la Revolution allowed a venue with maximum symbolic potential. Firstly, the public square had previously been named the Place Louis XV. In it, a large statue of Louis XV had once stood, and remnants of the statue's base were still present. But many public places in the city had once been named after a king. Many had once held statues of former monarchs. So why the Place Louis XV in particular? It was here, in the lead-up to the storming of the Bastille in July 1789, that royal cavalry had infamously charged a crowd of citizens as they attempted to suppress the nascent uprising. Furthermore, it was here that a large crowd had gathered to witness the king be forcibly returned to Paris after his failed escape attempt, the flight to Varennes. Thus, this public square would allow tens of thousands to watch the end of royalty and do so from a location which had already witnessed the crimes of royalty. In combination with security concerns regarding other public squares, this is what made the Place de la Revolution such an attractive location for regicide. With his carriage finally arriving at the scaffold at 10am, Louis exited with his clerical companion Edgeworth. Surrounded by soldiers, the Irish priest assisted the king as he climbed the steep staircase onto the executioner's platform. Tense moments followed as the pride of the king clashed with the realities of a death sentence. 
Louis intended to die fully clothed, but the practicalities and egalitarian traditions of the guillotine meant that such death was impossible. The executioners insisted, and Louis relented. The king removed his coat and collar and prepared for the end. But that wasn't enough. Generally, those executed by guillotine would have their hands bound behind their backs. As officials went to do this, the king vehemently resisted. However, the king again relented, this time after the intervention of the priest Edgeworth. Edgeworth appealed to the king's sincere religious beliefs and told Louis that his treatment was similar to that of Jesus's moments before his execution on the cross. Thus, the deeply devout king acquiesced. It's at this moment that the king proceeded to conduct himself in a manner which has earned the respect of many. He addressed the crowd, numbering tens of thousands, and delivered the following speech. I die innocent. I pardon my enemies, and I hope that my blood will be useful to the French, that it will appease God's anger. Drums interrupted Louis' speech. Perhaps the authorities feared what he had to say. Perhaps they just had no tolerance for the words of a traitor. But for whatever reason, Louis was unable to finish. Be that as it may, historian Peter McPhee notes the irony that his final words had been more decisive than his immobility in the years of crisis. One cannot help but wonder how things may have been different if the man who had spoken while standing on the scaffold had also done so while sitting on the throne. Having failed to complete his final words, Louis was promptly strapped down and slid into the proper position. The executioner released the blade, and Louis XVI was dead. How did the citizens of Paris greet this historic occasion? How did the crowd respond? How did the capital of this new republic react to the execution of its former king, of its former sovereign, of the man who had supposedly been appointed by God to rule? Well, for everyone except King Louis, life went on. After a few cheers, a few long-lived republics, some hats thrown in the air. Life just continued. Sources differ as to just how jubilant the crowd was upon the blade's fall, as to how long it took for the crowd to erupt in cries of joy and celebration. But what is clear is that the crowd soon moved on. Within minutes of the king's death, Paris began to revert to normality. The gates of the city were opened, People returned to work, the salons and taverns operated as usual. Life continued, and it did so as if nothing remarkable had just occurred. As one witness remarked, The life of the city resumed its course, unchanged. Yet, For all the normalcy of the afternoon and evening of the 21st of January, 1793, there was nothing normal about that day. 
the French Republic had executed its former king. The revolution, Europe, and indeed the world, would never be the same again. So, what are the consequences of this monumental event? What are the implications of the death of Louis XVI? Well, that's what I want to unpack for the rest of this episode, focusing on everything from its impact on factional politics, to the wider European war, to the viability of monarchy in France. We're going to start with the micro, the factions of Paris, and proceed to work our way to the larger implications of the king's death. If we start with the factionalism in the convention, it is argued by many historians that the king's trial had a profound and significant impact on both the popular standings of the revolutionary factions as well as their relationship with each other. Throughout the trial, the deputies of the mountain had argued for one thing death. They may have debated amongst themselves if a trial was even necessary. They may have argued as to whether or not the people had already proclaimed the king guilty. But on the matter of the king's punishment, the mountain stood united. The king was a traitor, and he deserved a traitor's death. The eventual execution of Louis XVI was thus a huge victory for the Montagnards. Yes, a victory for justice from their perspective, but it was also a political victory for the faction which now dominated the Jacobin Club. In the first era-defining battle of the convention, it was the Mountain who had succeeded, and they had done so with the support of the deputies of the Plain. This had two noteworthy implications. Firstly, these Jacobin deputies had strengthened their existing alliance with the radical and militant cohorts of Paris. It was these cohorts which had powered the revolution, which had been so critical to its success so far. Now more than ever, the city's radical clubs and societies, the city's radical sans-culottes, saw the mountain as the true champions of their interests in the convention. Paris had demanded death, and one faction had delivered it. In the coming months, maintaining the support of the Parisian radicals would be critically important for the Montagnards. But, as the Saint-Culottes radicalised further, it would not be an easy alliance to maintain. Secondly, in successfully dispatching the king to the scaffold, the deputies of the mountain had also laid the groundwork for greater cooperation with the unaffiliated deputies of the plain. The Jacobins held no majority in the convention. Their victory was in part due to the fact that they had been able to convince enough independent members of the plain to join them in their positions. This is critical because it was these deputies who would be crucial to the leaders of the mountain if they ever wished to command a consistent and governing majority in the national legislature. The Montagnards were far from the apex of their power, but in being able to garner the support of the independence of the convention, in being able to build links and credibility with those members, the rise of the mountain was well and truly underway. But if the king's demise was a significant victory for the mountain, it was a colossal defeat for the Girondins. Time and time again, 
the Girondins had acted in a manner which many Parisian radicals detested. From their perspective, the Girondins had stalled the trial, before then needlessly insisting on one when the people had already proclaimed the king guilty. Subsequently, the Girondins granted the king lawyers for a defence team, and then dragged out deliberations for weeks. Most importantly, Brousseau and his allies had supported the appeal to the people. The referendum was widely perceived to be a vehicle for clemency, and sure enough, once it was defeated, many Girondins revealed their true colours, and just outright supported reprieve, delay, or some other mechanism to save the king's life. For the Parisian radicals, this was akin to treachery. Thus, while there was significant division amongst the Girondins, the faction as a whole understandably became associated with advocacy for the king. As a result, they became associated with the other groups which shared this commonality. The aristocrats, the elites, the counter-revolutionaries. This, of course, was in sharp contrast to their Montagnard rivals, and it made the king's death a clear and undeniable setback for the faction which had once dominated revolutionary politics. Historian Eric Hazen states simply that the trial and execution of the king represented a major defeat for the Gironde. Agreeing in spirit with Hazen, historian Jeremy Popkin goes further, claiming the Girondins were in a state of disarray following their division and defeat. And it really is difficult to state just the terrible PR the Girondins had inflicted upon themselves. For some deputies of the plain, the trial had made the Girondins appear impractical, overly political, or just unable to take the measures required to deal with the situation at hand. The relentless, almost obsessive attacks on the mountain, the staunch defence of the king's life, the cumbersome appeal to the people, all of these priorities appeared to some unaffiliated deputies as misplaced given the severity and multitude of threats that menaced France. Furthermore, after the trial, the perception of the Girondins was now even worse in the eyes of the radicals of Paris. The leaders of the mountain, most notably Robespierre and Marat, had long been accusing the Girondins of secret royalism. The Girondins had been accused of working on behalf of elites, of aristocrats, of the counter-revolution. Well, in the eyes of some radical Saint-Colottes in Paris, what's more counter-revolutionary than seeking to save the life of the king? What's more dangerous than trying to save the traitor through a referendum which would enable and empower the renegade priests and devious nobility to influence the outcome? In conjunction with the other questionable acts the Girondins had committed, resisting the Revolutionary Tribunal, reluctantly embracing the 10th of August, accusing Robespierre and other Montagnard leaders of seeking supreme power, siding with speculators and hoarders on the matter of price maximums for foodstuffs and basic commodities, secretly colluding and collaborating with the court. In conjunction with all of these things, the trial of the king reconfirmed and solidified the terrible perception that the Girondins had managed to obtain for themselves. In the eyes of the revolution's most radical supporters, 
in the eyes of the revolution's most important vanguard. The Girondins were the new aristocracy. The Girondins were undeniably the new enemy. Historian Marisa Linton summarises the situation well. The debate of the King's trial further polarised the position of the Girondins and Jacobins. The Girondins had argued that the fate of the King should be determined by a national referendum. This was held against them by the Jacobins, who saw it as either a sign of royalism or of weakness, an attempt to abnegate responsibility for a situation which the Girondins themselves had done so much to bring about, and to risk civil war if the provinces should reject the death sentence, as they almost certainly would have done. It was not only the Jacobins who took the view that the Girondins had been both inept and self-serving in their attitude towards the monarchy. A considerable number of deputies shared this view, even while also remaining uneasy at the Jacobins' commitment to the Paris militants. Thus, the King's trial further divided the factions though not quite as much as it is sometimes supposed. There was still some space for difference of opinion. So, one outcome of the King's trial was not only the rising influence of the mountain, but also the further deterioration of Girondin leadership. While one faction had scored a tremendous victory, the other had suffered a devastating defeat. And it's perhaps this defeat that is more noteworthy. In the eyes of a great number of Parisian radicals, the Girondins were the next traitors which needed to be dealt with. In the eyes of some deputies of the plain, the Girondins seemed unable to govern, fixated on personal feuds and divided over impractical policy. With no sign of the troubles facing the revolution relenting, the Girondins were in an increasingly precarious and isolated position. Unfortunately for Brousseau and his allies, the coming months would do nothing to help their cause. Grey History is only possible thanks to the generous support of the listeners of this show. To ensure that there's more Grey History for you in the future, as well as to access hours of exclusive bonus content and other fantastic perks, support the show on Patreon for as little as $2 per regular episode. There's no better value for the price of just half a cup of coffee, and you'll love not only the full-length bonus episodes, but the mini-bonus episodes which accompany the regular show. The two-episode extras for this episode explores the life of the King's Irish confessor, Henry Edgeworth. How did an Irishman come to be the confessor to the King of France? And what happened to Edgeworth after Louis's death? We'll also be hearing Edgeworth's personal, first-hand account of the King's execution. Considering Edgeworth was standing on the scaffold, it's a perspective that's unique, to say the least. So, to indulge in these great episode extras, along with the hours of full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive perks, Google Grey History Patreon or follow the links in the show notes or on the website. Thank you to all the patrons for doing their part to keep Grey History on the air. Ironically, 
One of the issues which is not going to help the Girondins in their quest to maintain and then regain their political standing is the very issue they warned against. Throughout the trial, they had warned that executing Louis would expand the war with Europe, needlessly endangering the whole revolutionary project. Yet, considering the Girondin faction were so vital in commencing the revolutionary war in the first place, considering that they had uttered time and time again that it would be a short and easy war, and considering that only in November 1792 they were proclaiming their intention to create sister republics as far afield as Naples and Poland, I am not willing to award the Girondins any I told you so points when the execution of the king did, as predicted, fuel the escalation of the conflict with Europe. In fact, Brousseau will actually be defending France's declaration of war against England on the 1st of February, less than two weeks after the execution of the king. Yes, you heard me right. Brousseau will be defending France's declaration of war against England. Old habits die hard, I suppose. But conflict with the British was just the start. After the king's execution, war with the Netherlands, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, and others erupted within weeks. It seemed that almost all of Europe was at war by the end of March. Matters in Poland may have distracted the Allies, but conflict now engulfed the continent, and it would soon return as an existential threat to the revolution. We'll discuss the differing motivations of each state another time, but whether as a pretext or as a cause, the death of Louis XVI mobilised Europe to join the Austrians and the Prussians under arms. Historian Peter McPhee remarks that the king's execution was a turning point as it engulfed all of Europe in a war against France. Historian Albert Sabul agrees and notes that the revolutionaries themselves realised that there was now no going back. Sabul writes, The execution of Louis made quite impossible the policy of delay and indecision which the Gironde had been conducting until this moment. Throughout the trial, their deputies had continually advanced reasons of foreign policy to justify this position. Brousseau had said explicitly that in our discussions we do not look sufficiently at the rest of Europe. To this, Robespierre had replied on 28 December 1792 that victory will decide whether you are rebels or benefactors of your fellow men. For, in their desperate efforts to save the king, the Girondins wanted to narrow the basis of discussion to the question of European policy. In this way, whether they meant to do so or not, they were moving towards some compromise with the aristocracy, an inconsistent attitude on the part of men who, in November, had been preaching a war of propaganda. By executing the king, the mountain left to the nation no possible result, except outright victory. Indeed, the execution of Louis XVI had given the revolutionaries only one path forward. Having set all of Europe upon them, the fate of the revolution would now be determined on the battlefield.
This is one of the key legacies of the king's death, that the spillage of blood merely guaranteed more of the same. As historian George Lefebvre notes, the king's trial pitted those who were inclined to compromise in the interests of peace against those who refused to consider any concessions or terms with the counter-revolution. As a result, the victors of the king's trial, the regicides of the convention, gave the nation no hope of salvation except through total victory. As one deputy put it, We are fully committed now. The paths have been cut off behind us, and we have no choice but to go forward whether we like it or not. Now, as never before, we can truly say that we shall live as free men or die. The deputy Labar could not have known how true his words were. Victory on the battlefield was now the only way out. But, as we'll see in future episodes, the first few months of 1793 contained many things, yet victory was not one of them. Beyond the immediate effects on the revolution, beyond its impacts on factionalism and war, the death of the king did have a profound impact on an institution which had existed for centuries. That institution was, of course, the French monarchy. This impact had important implications, both in the short and long term. In an immediate effect, historian David Jordan is quick to note that through the abolition of the monarchy and the elimination of the king, the revolutionaries had done more than just set the nation on a republican course. They had, to use Jordan's words, set about the deliberate destruction of the executive branch of government. Furthermore, they had completed this destruction essentially instantaneously. Now, this is fascinating because the Constitution of 1791 had very deliberately sought to create a society where government was divided between the king, the legislature, and the courts. Yet, just a short while later, the next constitutional convention, for that is what the National Convention was, had reversed this entirely. The result is that France now had no executive branch. No proper one, at least. Yes, there was an executive council of ministers, but they were the very definition of subordinated to the convention. And this is an important development, because with all the troubles France faced, including both foreign war and, as we'll soon see, civil war, the nation needed a strong executive branch. A strong executive branch that was now missing in action. But if not a king, what else? A president? A council? Two consuls in togas? This will be an outstanding problem that the revolutionaries continued to try to solve in a variety of ways. Firstly, with the Committee of Public Safety, but then with the Directory, and finally the Consulate. All would fail to achieve any permanency. But it wasn't just these formulations which failed to take root. So too did a revived monarchy, both in the form of Napoleon's empire along with the restored Bourbon monarchy. You see, one of the key long-term implications of the king's trial 
was that it paved the way for monarchy's inability to successfully return to France. Sure, kings would return to France, but French monarchy would never, ever look as it had done prior to 1789. There would be charters and constitutions, there would be elected bodies, there would be expectations and accountabilities, there would, in short, be an entire different concept of what it meant to be king and what it meant to have a monarchy. Perhaps this is best seen in the fact that when Louis XVIII returned to France, he issued a declaration requiring an annual service to mark the death of his brother, Louis XVI. Yet, in a sign of just how much had changed, the king submitted the proposal to a body of elected deputies to review. Louis XIV's apocryphal line, I am the state, was clearly no longer the case. Kingship had clearly changed forever. Indeed, one of the most permanent changes after 1793 was that French kings lacked one very important thing which they had possessed prior to the revolution. Permanency. Louis XVII, the son of Louis XVI, he dies in prison. Louis XVIII, Louis XVI's brother, well, he does die on the throne, but not without having lost his crown to Napoleon during the Hundred Days. He also spent most of his reign in exile. Forced abdication followed for both his successors, Charles X and Louis-Philippe I. If you want to add the Bonapartes into the equation, they too are also kicked off their thrones before their end. French history in the 19th century is a roller coaster of a ride. But throughout it all, monarchy would never return to France in the form it had existed for hundreds of years prior to the Revolution. And by 1873, France would never have any form of king or emperor again. The permanency of the abolition of French monarchy in the style which it had existed is noted by many. Historian Simon Sharma notes succinctly, It was indeed the case that, for all the attempts at restoration in the 19th century, kingship in France was killed along with the king. Agreeing with Sharma is historian George Lefebvre, someone belonging to a completely different school of historical thought. Lefebvre shares Sharma's conviction and writes of Louis' execution. Its effects will long be debated. Execution of the king aroused pity and exalted royalist convictions, yet it seems undeniable that monarchical sentiment was dealt a severe blow. A king had been put to death like any ordinary man. Royalty lost, never to recover, the supernatural quality that even the revolution had not yet eradicated. In short, the execution of the king struck an irrecoverable blow against both the man and the institution. While monarchs would return to France, future kings could ultimately not recover what had been lost. The king was dead, and so too was kingship. 
With the death of Louis XVI in January 1793, the convention could finally turn its attention to the many troubles beset in France. Inflation, food scarcity, and religious and political unrest were just some of the numerous woes that needed to be addressed. But as the months wore on, and as treason and military defeat returned with menace, the country would slip into a spiral of desperation and despair. The revolutionaries did not know it yet, but the coming months would be some of the most controversial and contentious in the history of France. Circumstances would push citizens to the extremes, and the sunny rays of hope and optimism which had heralded the revolution of 1789 would be firmly extinguished. Their replacement was something quite different. The night is dark and full of terrors. In the next episode, we'll be unpacking your questions on the French Revolution. So if you haven't already, please send them in. Feel free to also send in any comments or opinions you may want to share on the King's trial. As always, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you find it entertaining, if you find it educational, then help do your part to ensure there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow. Gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content, a range of behind-the-scenes perks, and of course, an ad-free feed by supporting the show on Patreon. You'll also gain access to the two episode extras for this episode, exploring how an Irish priest came to be the confessor to the French king, what happened to him after Louis XVI's death, and his first-hand account of the king's execution. Joining the community costs as little as $2 per regular episode, and it's the best way you can secure yourself more grey history. Thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon, including the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, and Charles. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.